0: Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about the address J.D. Greer gave at the Southern Baptist Convention and then something interesting that Amazon has done. You're listening to The Common Good. everybody, welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, really glad to have you with us on this Wednesday afternoon. It just keeps getting warmer, and so uh, the snow is starting to melt, and uh, it starts to feel like a little bit of the light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, we are thrilled to be joined for the second day in a row by our guest host, the lead pastor of Redemption Bible Church in Mount Prospect, uh, a man who is no longer of the birthday boy, but that was yesterday. So Ashley, Ashley Hare. Ashley, how are you, buddy? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. You know,
2: I was looking through Facebook memories today, and I did. I totally forgot this. I was with you a year ago
0: today. Is that so, right? <laughs> I, I'm just going to wow. make both
2: these days about anniversaries of something,
0: I guess. How crazy, how much has changed in one year? Like, let's be, uh, those, little let's be bit, that little guy right ahead. now. Just be like this. When you and I were sitting there last year, we could have never believed what was never. coming.
2: It'd be, uh, it'd be great to go back and have a conversation with yourself now a year later and be able to tell you, it, be in it for the long haul. It's going to yeah. be okay.
0: Here's kind of what to expect. Just calm down. It's crazy. I remember about this time last year, Ian put up on our Facebook page. Uh, we had like this think tank, and he asked them, what are some things you want to hear about? And one of the guys jokingly wrote, "Like I just don't want to hear about this COVID anymore. Oh, yeah. <laughs> now, a year later, here we are. <laughs> so uh, we're glad to have Ashley with us again for today. Ashley, while we were doing the show yesterday, kind of the news was unfolding about Tiger Woods. Uh, And thankfully, uh, Tiger Woods has non-life-threatening injuries from his car crash yesterday, uh, but uh, very significant injuries. They essentially said his right leg was crushed. Uh, And he's got a long, long road ahead of him. I I wouldn't be surprised if he never plays competitive golf again. But were you surprised at all, not only how you felt? I know I was kind of obsessed with the story, but it led everything today, not just the sports stores, but like the first 10 minutes of the Today Show, uh, or yeah. the Tiger Woods accident. And I would have understood if he had died. But but I was kind of – it says something about who Tiger Woods is, but also the power of celebrity, don't you think? Very
2: much so. its He's a part of – like we talked about this yesterday. He's a part of all of our families. And we yeah. feel like we know him. And I think there's something, too. So the I have not seen the HBO documentary that just came out recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. But that was just in this last month. And so he's come back to the surface again. And I can't help but think that that's increased our empathy for him and everything that he's gone through and that's just right. seeing him. It's all, so he's a celebrity. He entered our house and now we're seeing him as a human being like us in a some sense. And I think that just draws us into his story and what happened yesterday
0: even more. Yeah, I I agree with that. And we love a good comeback story. And his comeback was the 2019 Masters. Uh, And so now to have this next thing where people like, can he come back from this? Uh, It's going to be really interesting. So prayers for him and his family. Thankful uh, that. I mean, it sounds weird to say it's only a shattered leg or two might be both legs, which is going to be months and months of rehab. And who knows what state he'll be back in. But uh, they said Uh, And and then we'll move on from this. They said the amount of space that he missed both a telephone pole and a tree, both of which would have likely killed him, was uh, by uh, inches or a couple feet on both of those. So in many ways, he was lucky. So glad glad for him. and, And we'll see where that story goes. I wanted to start today. Uh, talking about the Southern Baptist Convention and a very interesting address given by the Southern Baptist Convention President J.D. Greer. J.D. Greer is not only the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, but he is also the pastor of a really big church down in Raleigh, uh, North Carolina. I believe it's called Summit Church. Uh, J.D. Greer gave his address, a speech to the uh, Southern Baptist Convention Executive Committee. And let me just read some of the highlights. Ashley, I'm sure you've seen this, but for those people who haven't, Uh, Let me read some of just J.D. Greer's quotes, uh, and then I would love your feedback. He said he talked about the sowing dissension and lies in the nation's largest Protestant denomination. He said this. We are not at our core a political activism group. We love our country, but God has not called us to save America. He's called us to build the church and spread the gospel. And that is our primary mission. Later on, he said, if we're going to be gospel above all people, it means that we will be a church that engages all of the peoples in America, not just one kind. And that's hard. Bringing together people of different backgrounds and cultures and ethnicities into the church creates challenges. Anybody that says it's not hasn't actually done it. Uh, He went on to talk about Russell Moore and what has happened with Russell Moore. He went on to say the last year has revealed areas of weakness in our beloved convention of churches, fissures and fault lines and fleshly idolatries. COVID didn't produce these crises; It only exposed them. Uh, and then let me go for the line that many people said uh, is the take home line. We should mourn when closet racists and neo-Confederates feel more at home in our churches than do many of our people of color. The reality is that if we in the SBC had shown as much sorrow for their painful legacy that racism and discrimination has left in our country, as we have passion to decry critical race theory, we probably wouldn't be in this mess. And he, he finished by saying, do we want to be a gospel people? or a Southern culture people, which Mm. is the more important part of our name, Southern or Baptist. And so if you look at kind of Christian Twitter, Ashley, uh, a lot of praise for what J.D. Greer uh, said, but also a lot of people very upset by what J.D. Greer said. So as you saw what he said uh, and heard those quotes, some thoughts about the president of the Southern Baptist Convention there.
2: I thought that took a lot of courage. And what I wanted to do, one, I wanted to pray for the guy because I can only imagine what his email inbox looks like. <laughs> yeah. uh, I wanted to pray. I'm assuming, you know, they have a large enough church, he's got an administrative assistant that's filtering some of those. And uh, but no, it, it was a courageous thing to say. And it's something about somebody within the S- we're not an SBC church. So we're looking at it from the outside. Right. But uh, to, to say within the SBC, we need to acknowledge our past the good and the bad, and we need to be honest about it. That's, that's pretty powerful. And it's like th- there's the, the race uh, issue that's being discussed and that history, but also the uh, sexual abuse and cover-up that's being addressed in there. And so, like, praise God that some of these things have come to the surface to the point that they just have to be talked about. They can't be hidden anymore. And uh, I pray that as a convention, again, like they're cousins of ours, basically. Right. Yeah. I want to cheer them on and pray for them that they come out of this stronger uh,
0: on the other end. And we also don't want to point fingers and be like, oh, I can't believe you're struggling with that. This is something most churches in America yes. are struggling with. The, the Southern Baptist Convention is just the biggest one of them, right, as as a denomination. J.D. Greer yeah. also said, uh, brothers and sisters, in the 1980s, we repudiated the leaven of the liberals, a leaven that threatened to poison the gospel. Are we now going to repudiate the leaven of the Pharisees, which can choke out the gospel just as easily? And so, it like you said, it was a... It was really, really strong words. Uh, and and I, I guess I would close it with this. Maybe we should never be surprised by this. But were you, were you surprised that there was some really fervent uh, objections to what he said?
2: No, not at all, because we get comfortable in things. And I, I don't think we want to be told that what we've been doing might have been wrong or that we missed something. Mm-hmm. And there's something that phrase always be reforming that, you know, if we as individual Christians should always be growing in, in our sanctification Uh, shouldn't we collectively as the body of Christ be doing that too? And so I I loved your point. It's not just the SBC. It's all of us. It's just that we each go about our uh, polity differently. And the SBC is going to be more public than say the Presbyterians who are going to handle it within the Presbytery. So it's, I hope we
0: all learn from this. Me too. Me too. And this is a big deal down in the South, especially, but nationwide JD Greer uh, really going at it. I would encourage you to read the article at our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram page uh, at common good talk, but there, I I don't always encourage people to do this, but go find the story and read the comments. Uh, read the comments to the story because you're going to see the spectrum of the people cheering them on. Yes, thank you for saying this, and you're going to see the flip side, the spectrum of people going, "How dare you?" Uh, and and why they felt that way. I think it is actually pretty informative well, we're off and running today ashley and me uh here on the common good coming up next something uh troublesome and interesting happened over at amazon uh in the last couple days we're going to talk about that next year on the common good aim 1160 hope for your life hey friends welcome back to the common good here on aim 1160 hope for your life my name is brian from glad to have you with us on this hump day on this wednesday afternoon uh, glad to be joined by the lead pastor of Redemption Bible Church in Mount Prospect, Illinois, that being Ashley Hare. And Ashley, we're also being joined by my dog in the background. So uh, we're also Well, I mean, it's that. a guest spot, right? Man, this is crazy. I what didn't know ha- I'd have brought Alice or Beagle on, too. Here. But- Here's what happened. So people can get, get behind the curtain. Ever since uh, the pandemic began, uh, Ian and I and now myself and whoever's hosting with me, we're doing the shows m- the vast majority of the time from our homes. And uh, with that, you know, us pastors and radio hosts don't have enormous homes. <laughs> and so I'm in my bedroom. And uh, my dog is downstairs looking out the window and sees other dogs walk by. And when she does, you would think it was the end of the world. And she's just going to go crazy. <laughs> and so
2: well, this wasn't a problem a week ago when it was too cold to even step outside. But Good today it's beautiful. Night. So everybody's walking dogs. And since
0: I'm up in my room, I can see it coming like I can see the people starting to walk. <laughs> so uh, anyway, we are going to be back in the studio soon. But th- this is covid life for us. Right. Pandemic life where. Uh, we do the shows from our homes. And so you get, to, you get to meet my dogs. Ashley and I talked yesterday about how we both got uh, dogs over pandemic, pandemic, pandemic dogs. pups. And uh, that was my second dog. And so I believe it's the, uh, it's the younger one who is uh, going a bit crazy. Hey, she's protecting the house is what she is doing, apparently, in her own mind. So, all righty. That dog by the name is named Jersey uh, because I was I grew up in New Jersey. So there you go. All right. At Christian Headlines, assey I'm very excited to get your take on this one. Uh, we read this title uh, written by uh, Milton Quintanilla. Amazon removes book critical of transgenderism ahead of equality act vote. All right. Here, you know, let me get us into it. A scholar recently had his book removed from Amazon due to its critique of the transgender movement. Ryan Anderson, a former scholar at the Heritage Foundation, published his book titled When Harry Became Sally, Responding to the Transgender Movement in 2018 in his book. Anderson seeks to understand the meaning of human embodiment and public policy considerations pertaining to transgender issues. Anderson, the new president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C., did not realize that the world's largest retailer had removed his book until people trying to purchase it informed him that it was gone. In an email, uh He said the book, however, is not out of stock despite its disappearance. In an email to The Christian Post on Monday, Anderson recounted past criticisms of his book, including critical editorials in The Washington, New York Times and The Washington Post. It's obvious, though, he said the critics haven't read the book. People who've actually read my book discovered that it was a thoughtful and accessible presentation of the state of the scientific, medical, philosophical and legal debates. Yes, it advances an argument from a certain viewpoint. But no, it didn't get any facts wrong and it didn't engage in any name calling. He added even that his book has been praised by medical experts and legal scholars on both sides. Anderson, whose book was published three years ago, argued that his work on critiquing the transgender movement will be silenced today, especially as the House of Representatives is set to vote on the Equality Act. Later on, he points out uh, that Twitter is now reporting the cover of his book as, quote, potentially sensitive content uh, and uh, that Apple also has pulled it. Uh, and he said, "I'm sure Amazon, Apple, and Twitter it's all just a coincidence. So there's more to this story. Uh, but what do you think of uh, of major um, not not publisher bookseller like Amazon or social media like Twitter uh, pulling this three year old book that hadn't been pulled before now pulling it in what feels like it amounts to uh, just some censorship what, what did you think when you read this? Yeah, two things came to mind the first was
2: i read an article the other day about a guy who uh he was from england and he was actually executed for making uh, an english translation of the bible Uh, his name was like bill Tyndale, something like that (laughs) Uh, so like this isn't new necessarily you know Uh, but it did in all seriousness it kind of made me think of the bakery situation Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and when is a private company allowed to uh, decide with whom and how they do business. And, and like the article said something about that Amazon pointed to their content guidelines, not where they violated, but they just referred to the content guidelines. And you know, like I'm assuming there's contracts that are signed and agreements made. You know, another one that came to mind was parlor being shut down by Amazon where there, my understanding. And I could be wrong is that Amazon was able to point in their contract with parlor within the T's and C's what they violated, uh, that justified taking it down. Uh, but this is going to be interesting as things like this continue um, on where that line is.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, here's where Amazon gets itself in a little bit of hot water. If you, in, in my opinion, uh, is that um, they, they're picking and choosing what they block, what they deem uh, to block of controversial books when, in fact, Uh, if you go on Amazon, you could still buy things like Mein Kampf (laughs) and you could still buy things written by uh, Saddam Hussein, somebody else found out or some others. And so it's a very slippery slope. Now, that doesn't mean you don't go down this slippery slope, right? Like, you know, if there's an overtly racist book that you don't want people to get their hands on or something like that, it's your right. They are, like you said, a private company. I would just think Amazon, Twitter, Apple, this is a slippery slope that you want to be real careful about. And here's what's interesting is that this book has been out there for three years on Amazon. Right. And, and so are they going to
2: are they just going to take their cues from the mob? Then what whatever side that may be uh, on what they pull and when they pull it?
0: Therein lies the question, because they also have a book that is there was a book written in response to Anderson's book called Let Harry Become Sally, responding to the anti-transgender movement written by Kelly Novak in 2018. And that is still up for purchase on mm-hmm. Amazon. So the timing is strange. Uh, and, and it is just this. Uh, here's also what I don't understand. Like if you're Amazon and maybe you don't care, but if you're Amazon, if you're Twitter who is already getting a ton of backlash uh, about picking and choosing what you silence. Right. You talked about parlor and other things getting yeah. pulled from Apple and stuff. If you're already if, if you've already got this perception problem. And again, maybe you don't care about the perception. Uh, but if you've got this perception problem, why you'd want to open the door to people going, see, I told you this is all yeah. this is just an arm of the left wing or this is just an anti-Christian or is this is just this or that. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know why you would do it other than uh, that. you that you don't really care. Like, you don't yeah. care about the backlash. Uh, Anderson also noted that his book uh, sold out at Barnes & Noble. To be honest with you, is going to help this guy's <laughs> book. I say uh, he
2: got free press.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, it said Anderson also seemed to be having trouble with other online realtors, uh, retailers such as Apple Books. Uh, He added then his Twitter post uh, and other stuff. And so and but it hits the libraries then, too, doesn't it? Uh, We have
2: an individual in our church who oversees a a local library here. And we were talking the other day. We've been comparing notes throughout the pandemic on just leading organizations. Mm. And um, we were talking the other day about critique he gets on certain books that the library has on their shelves. Should this book be there? Should that book not be there? And uh, it's the conversations only going to continue. And I fear that what we've seen the last four years only get more heated.
0: Yeah. And I would think this, those of you are like, no, pull it. If it's insensitive, a who's making that call, right? Like that becomes uh, you be really careful because who gets to make that call? And two, I would say this. They're going – I get it. There's going to be outliers to the statement I'm about to make here, so please don't email and be like, oh, well, what about this? Uh, But in general, I think a general principle would be uh, having – a discussion, having stuff accessible is better than silencing everything. Instead, let's have it out there. Let's have the other book that was written against it. Let's have conversations. Let's do that as opposed to uh, shutting down one point of view that you, quite frankly, allowed for three years on your site uh, and and not the other. So you guys might think we're
2: wrong. Go ahead. I got a question for you. I'm sure. Do you have a book on your bookshelf in your study that you just entirely do not agree with, but you keep it on your shelf anyway?
0: Uh, I, yeah, yeah, I have, I, 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 I only said that way because I, I no longer have an office at the church. So my books <laughs> are all over the place right now. I don't, I think to your point though, it's not a bad thing to read things that you don't agree with. In fact, oh, that's I, I think it's a good thing. That's how we grow. And yes. so it can't be, I don't agree with that. Or I think that that could be offensive. And then you actually read it and you're like, well, actually, you know, it wasn't defensive. It was. And you can still hit. disagree, but understand why they took that position. A hundred percent. Let us know what you think. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at Common Good Talk. Well, coming up next, we're going to enjoy this headline from The Washington Post. His pastors tried to steer him away from social media rage. He stormed the Capitol anyway. Going to tell that story next year on The Common Good. AM 1160. Hope for your life. <laughs> Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good AM 1160. Hope for your life. My name is Brian Fromm. Really happy to have you with us on what I've always referred to after that great commercial uh, with the camel as Hump Day. Ian never liked that, but hey, Ian's not here anymore, so I can call it Hump Day again. Uh, (laughs) So glad to have you with us here on The Common Good. Joined for a second day. Uh, by Ashley Hare, uh, lead pastor of Redemption Bible Church in Mount Prospect. Ashley was with us yesterday on his birthday and then told us in the first segment that his Facebook memories told us that he joined me uh, for an hour this day last year. So Apparently you're the host for February 24th every year that we're just, is that what today is? 24th. Uh, it's the twenty fourth. If
2: yesterday was the 23rd today, if I'm asked as well, <laughs> yes, yes. Is the 24th.
0: That tends to be the way that it works. And so uh, apparently, uh, you know, we're just going to keep calling you on February 24th. Like that's going to be our thing from now until the end of time. So I'm done with it. Yeah, exactly. Glad to have Ashley with us and glad to have you guys all with us as well. Uh, wanted to jump into this because man, did this uh, headline as a pastor, uh, really strike me. Ashley and I are both pastors. As I said, Ashley's at Redemption Bible Church in Mount Prospect. I'm at Four Corners Community Church down in Darien, Illinois. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, and so this was at the Washington Post in their religious section. It says this his pastors tried to steer him away from social media rage. He stormed the Capitol anyway. So Ashley and I, both being pastors, I found that headline really interesting. Let me get into this. And then Ashley, I'm going to want to ask you about uh, what you're telling people about social media in your congregation. What, how often do you tackle this? So be ready for that. He, the article begins this way. Facebook was making him angry. I, that's, isn't that all of us right now? For weeks last spring and summer, Michael Sparks had watched a video of protests for racial justice around the country with growing unease. He could not turn away from his phone, even as he feared that it was changing him. He posted his outrage. He posted that he hated seeing what was happening. He posted that he wanted to kill people. The 43 year old husband and father didn't believe that he actually would, but he knew even just saying so fell short of the Christian witness he wanted to bring to the world. His pastor at Franklin Roads, at Franklin Crossroads Baptist Church in Kentucky advised him to leave Facebook. He considered it. Instead, the rage that had begun online led him to Washington DC not long after the new year. According to the FBI, Sparks was the first to enter the Capitol through a smashed window near the Ohio clock corridor wearing jeans, a light black jacket and eyeglasses. He crawled over broken glass uh, to overturn a presidential election in his booking photo for Kentucky's Oldham County Detention Center. Taken 13 days later, he was wearing a T-shirt that reads armor of God and cites a Bible verse, Ephesians chapter six, verse 11. Put on the full armor of God so that you could take your stand against the the devil's schemes. Uh, The attack on the Capitol was for many involved a Christian insurrection. But as Sparks' story shows, his faith played a more complicated role in his journey to January 6th. While his social media posts make clear he connected the election and his religious beliefs, his church community had also been a force cautioning him against letting online resentment take over his life. That tension highlights the complex influence some churches have had through the past tumultuous months and may yet have in the future. Let me pause there. Ashley, the description there of a a complex influence some churches have had through the past tumultuous months is a fabulous way to put this because Ian and I talked about this so much over the last year, this tension about what we saw people in our church the conspiracy theories or mm-hmm. what they were posting online, not just people at church, but family, friends, whatever else. And what's our role there? How do we speak into that? What do we have to tell people? Uh, it's been such a hard thing to walk down. So you and I have never talked about it. Just how have you approached your church with social media over the past months?
2: You know, we we specifically talked about the capital issue the first Sunday afterwards, and I kind of cut, uh, you know, a ten minute chunk out of my sermon to spend time talking about, you know, just addressing uh, Christian nationalism. It was it was a term that many had not heard; many had uh, talking about that and addressing why we view that as as sinful and how that can go uh, off the rails, so to speak. But I also wanted to talk about an issue that I knew many in our church were having, which was we were just being inundated with information and consumed by the constant yeah. media. Yeah. And the, the thing we talked about that day was we are being discipled by the world rather than the word. And like this guy had, he had the quote, I've noticed my phone has been in my hand more than my Bible. And that's exactly it is we're filling our minds with Twitter. We're filling our minds with Facebook, with videos that we're watching on YouTube, all of these other things. And God and his word kind of get put in the back, don't they? Mm-hmm.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. It,
2: it, we're always being discipled by something. It's just Absolutely. a matter of who and what.
0: Absolutely. Listen to what this guy goes on to say later. He, he made an apology video and he says, I want to apologize. I have definitely not been showing godly things on there. That being Facebook. You know, I've even gotten so far as to say I would shoot a person in the head, whether I would or not, doesn't matter. That's a scary line. He says, I don't need to get on there and spread this because I'm not showing the love of Christ. Goes on to say social media in Sparks's description is often a tormentor, an active force that may do some good, but mostly means you harm. Facebook became for him the site of an ongoing clash with himself, a constant reminder that as a believer, he was locked in a spiritual war with forces posing threats to his family and his country. Uh, his participation in this looming spiritual war came with a price. In the video, he notes that he, that the population of his friend list became uh, seemed to have dropped by half. Uh, so let's again pause there. This idea of social media, like you said, discipling us, uh, but not just that. Uh, I don't know if you've seen it, Ashley, Ian, and I talked a lot about it, but the Netflix special the, um the social dilemma.
2: That was so good and so scary at the same time, wasn't 100% it?
0: hundred percent true. Because what the social dilemma uh, does in painstaking form and fashion is show you that that social media is not just uh, responding to your beliefs and curating your beliefs. They're forming your beliefs. Yeah. Well,
2: yeah. In that documentary, when they call us not the consumer, but the product.
0: Yep. You it, it you're
2: frozen. You can't believe it. But that's the perfect description. It's not for us. It's for others.
0: And they're using us for it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so the, str- the struggle for us as pastors. Uh, and again, I'd love to know what you think is how much time do I spend in my pulpit going, hey, I want to talk to you again about social media or even harder than that. Yeah. Let me know what you think about this. When you see somebody in your church post something that just is inflammatory uh, derogatory um just is is just not good is it your role to say something how how do you approach that
2: it is so hard to know when to step in and intervene yeah. and when there when there is an opportunity there's there's a specific case that comes to mind that it, it wasn't so much what was being said but how it was being said and the consistent let's see with which it was being said in that way and so there was a conversation that we had and we started another way and then we were able to easily jump right into it. And so um, I've tried to be big on like, keep the doors open with everyone as much mm-hmm. as you can, especially in the pandemic, invite people to step through those doors. And when you can have a conversation with someone you have an established relationship with, you can put your arm around them and ask about what's going on in, in a different way. And so I, like, I'm not a big fan of wagging the finger, I'd rather put the arm around and be like, hey, so when you posted that the other day, what were you thinking? Yeah. Because oftentimes, let's be honest, there's something else going on, too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we get angry at X and we post Y on Facebook. Yeah. Yeah. And um, uh, my coach, he says, "Uh, let's let's assume the best and ask the hard questions. Mm -hmm. And at first, those seems mutually exclusive. But that's what I've been trying to put into practice with this is uh, I don't want to police social media. Um, but when you see something, you, you kind of get that gut feeling of I need to talk to that brother about that. Absolutely,
0: absolutely. It's a good way to put it. It's, it's a hard one, uh, and yeah. I do want I want to bring this up to confront us, all of us, about how is your social media? What is your social media presence? Uh, and what does it say about Jesus? You know, to claim mm-hmm. uh, the number of people in their Twitter uh, bio who have Christ follower or follower of Jesus, and then are just uh, just downright cruel and downright. Um, just embarrassing on social media is really hard to see because then people tend to call them out. But give this article a read. I found it since it's kind of a first person account. It's an interesting uh, look into a guy who said, you know what? I'm a uh, my pastor told me to get off Facebook. I, I know it's tr- it's a struggle for me, but it led him to be one of the first people to get into the Capitol on January 6th. And he says, it led, that's what led him there. So check that out at our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Common Good Talk. Well, coming up next article from the Gospel Coalition, the state of church attendance as COVID turns one. We're going to talk about COVID and the church next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, hope for your life. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us today and glad to be joined again for a second day in a row by the lead pastor of Redemption Bible Church in Mount Prospect, Illinois, that being Ashley Hare. Uh, and Ashley at the Gospel Coalition, uh, found this blog from Trevin Wax just written yesterday. Uh, and as pastors, you know, we, we see this and it just catches our eye. We're like, okay. It says the state of church attendance as COVID turns one. Uh, so we, uh, are, take very keen interest in this as pastors, but can we just pause there for a second and, and just be, uh, flabbergasted again that COVID's turning one.
2: There's no concept of of time as evidenced by, uh, you know, just before this, I told you in private, it's like, I read this article a couple of days ago and then you said it only came out yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) There's no concept of time
0: anymore. That's true. The the fact that COVID uh, because I'll never forget, you know, when it was like March 8th, March 11th, whenever anything, everything shut down. March 8th was the last Sunday we met in person. Okay, there you go. And so, you know, later that week, as things started to shut down and you could tell that this that this uh momentum for like schools closing down churches, yeah. it was happening. I'll never forget being like, OK, this is an unprecedented using a word that we've all used too much. Uh, this is unprecedented, but it'll be short. You know, like, we'll get, remember, the whole talk was like, will we be back together for Easter, which was a month that, later? That, our elder conversation
2: we, was, are we suspending service for two or three weeks to go online only?
0: Right. And so the concept of not being together for Easter was unfathomable. And then I will yeah. never forget sitting down with our staff and saying, guys, like, I think we have to have an honest conversation. This was like in late March. I said, yep. I think we have to have an honest conversation that this could last to like June. Yeah. Like this might not be done. And I remember there all of us just trying to get our minds around that. And now we're, you know, March 1st is next week. And and we're still dealing with this is just unbelievable. And businesses, restaurants, churches, schools, uh, leisure activity, everything has been affected. But Trevin Wax writes here about the effect it's had on church and namely church attendance. And so you said this kind of messed with you. So I'm interested to know why. But let me read some of it first. Trevin Wax writes, we are just weeks away from the one year mark when COVID-19 disrupted the world and forced us all into a season of quarantine. Twelve months later, with most schools and restaurants reopened eh, kind of. We've learned how to go on with life while seeking to mitigate the spread of the disease and protect frontline medical workers from being overwhelmed with cases. The majority of churches have reopened as well. Again, you can, I, I don't think he's writing from Illinois right now. <laughs> right. Uh, but ministries geared towards adults, students and children have lagged behind worship services. Even as vaccinations are on the rise and hospitalizations are falling, pastors are unsure about the future. Here's a snapshot from the latest LifeWay research. So general church attendance, he says, most churches in the U.S., 76% met in person in January, but that percentage dropped 11% from September of 2020, which indicates that the early winter surge led to churches stepping back. Even though most churches are meeting again, the difference from one year ago is drastic. Of the churches meeting in person, a third of the pastors say they're averaging only 50% of their attendance a year before. Another third said it's at least 70% at what it was. Within that number, only 8% of that say they're at 90% or above. So how about that? Overall church attendance. Again, we're in Illinois. Ashley. it's really hard to tell here because... Most of us are being like, hey, we're only letting 50 people in, right? right. And knowing yeah, for that us in people-
2: California, Yeah, for us in California, this just feels like, I'll be honest, I read it and was like, oh my gosh, are we doing something wrong? Because we've been taking, you know, I, I worded it like this, we're walking a tightrope and we're going to fall to one side or the other. It's just natural. And so we said we're going to continue to fall to the side of caution and we're trying to be consistent with that. But you read this and you're like, we're not even allowing 50%. You know, we were like 250 or so before the pandemic. We had a we had a baptism on Sunday and we hit 120 and we thought we felt like a mega church. <laughs> you know? And we were able to maintain all of our spacing and all of our protocols and, and do it that way, but uh, we're not even we're not even close to talking about that yet. And I'll admit like I read these numbers and I'm like what are we doing something wrong? And then you get to student ministry and kids ministries and the number of churches that are back back full like they're back the way they were a year ago is uh, and I don't mean this to condemn them. I was I was just feeling the weight of, oh, man.
0: Yeah, it's it's really nuts because our church. Uh, Wait, know, what are you guys doing right now? Yeah, that's what, our church is. We're only our worship center is not very big. So we're only keeping it to like 25 percent of what it, of capacity. And so, yeah, that's like you know, 60, 65 adults. And we haven't even started any children's stuff. We're starting a very basic children's ministry at the beginning of March. And, uh, and, and you know, it's still masked and spaced out and everything, yeah. but the majority of people, there's more people watching or either not attending and not watching at <laughs> also uh, than who are coming. And so it's almost like you have this small church within your church. Uh, yeah. and, and I think you could speak to this, right? The ultimate fear, and I'll use that word intentionally that many of us pastors feel is like, are those people coming back? Like, right. Uh, it's it's become they? comfortable and easy to, to
2: watch at home. And, and it, I'm, I appreciate the honesty that people in, in our church and other churches are having where there's kind of this constant thing of, yeah, it's almost become like having the office on in the
0: background in Sunday morning. Mm, that's, uh, that's really interesting. Yeah. I've, you know, those weeks were or months where we were only online and I'm the preacher, right? Like, it, we'd record it during the week uh, and I'd, you know, my family and I would sit down and watch it. And I was like, I don't like this. Like, I just don't like this. I don't think for most people, my opinion isn't that people want to stay home because it's comfortable. Uh, it's if they weren't really connected to the church, they might have realized I'm pretty good not being connected to that church anymore. And so those people won't come back. And quite frankly, there's some people that may never feel safe. And you might be out there going, that's ridiculous. I get that you might think it's ridiculous, but it doesn't matter. If they think they don't feel safe, then, then so be it. And so I've kind of started working under the premise, I think, tell me what you think about this. I think most churches, when we're back to quote unquote air quotes normal will be smaller uh, but more committed. I think I, people I, will be more committed because they miss each other so much, but yep. that they'll be smaller. There's going to be parts of our church that aren't coming back.
2: I think that's exactly it and uh, and it makes you want like you try to tell yourself. Well, we might be smaller, but who we lost on the fringe, is that actually, does that make us stronger in the end? But let's be honest, in the end, there's two parts to it. Your heart aches for those who are going to lose that connection to a church. So there's like, there is the righteous part, but there's also, can we be honest, the sinful, prideful part of a pastor's heart that it's more fun and engaging to preach and worship in a fuller room. And if your room was made for 250 and now there's 50, it feels weird. Yeah. If your room was made for a thousand and now there's 200, that feels like people are missing. And so like one of the things we've tried to do is to keep all of the chairs out and tape off the rows we're not using. So we can see the people who aren't here with us right now. Yeah,
0: yeah. And, Wonder, uh, what, What's the next step for you guys? That, assuming numbers go well, like, right, this could all change tomorrow. Uh, but assuming numbers go well, do you have a next step or are you guys going to sit where you're at for a while? So what we
2: had said was like this whole week by week, month by month thing was just getting emotionally exhausting. And so we threw we cast it so far out that, you know what, we're going to focus on uh, kids and youth coming back in the fall. And let's keep going on on Sunday morning. Uh, we're doing online kid stuff every week and throughout the week, but we just, we pushed it out there. And if we get to pull it in sooner, praise God. And now, like just in these past couple of weeks, we've seen more northwest suburban public schools bringing kids back mm-hmm. part day. It's like, okay, that's always been kind of our, our precursor, if you will. When they start going back, we're going to start talking about coming back. And so uh, we're, we're kind of in line with you is our kids, uh, Pastor, their home, they just had their first baby uh, mm. last week. And when he gets back, you know, Pastor Rob and I, we're going to start talking about what would it look like to kind of do a soft launch of bringing, bringing kids back. Uh, but even there, we got to talk about who wants to volunteer.
0: That's our problem. And, that's the problem yeah. we run into. Besides, just is it right? Is the timing right? It's that next step of people. Yep. What if some of your, uh, you know, what if some of your most committed volunteers are still people who don't want to be back yet? Uh, yeah. And that's okay. Like we don't want to force anybody to come back. Exactly, you come back when you're ready to come back. But it is a complex thing that, especially churches our size, uh, yeah. your and I's churches are very comparable in size. It's it's a it's a deal, and this is hard. It is and. Uh, I will selfishly tell people uh, cut cut your uh, cut your leaders some slack, and uh, and we're all trying to figure this out. None of us went to school and took how uh, to pastor during right. an endemic. and so yeah, we would love to know what you think. Uh, this Gospel Coalition article, like all our articles, is up at our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Common Good Talk. Well, coming up next, we're gonna have a little bit more pastor talk. I think something you'll find really interesting that uh, Ashley and I were talking about offline. Uh, what is it that we are willing to talk about from the pulpit and when do you when do you know or what what do you do when you hear people say that they think you've crossed the line We're going to talk about that next year on the common good am 1160 hope for your life. Coming up this hour, how as pastors do we decide what we do and don't talk about from the pulpit? And then we're going to be joined for two segments by Brett McCracken, the author of the book, The Wisdom Pyramid. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Thanks so much for joining us again today. We're joined for a second day uh, by the lead pastor of Redemption Bible Church in Mount Prospect, Illinois, uh, Ashley Aher. So, Ashley, this is fun, man. I'm really grateful that you've, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a, you got to carve the time out. So, I'm really grateful that you've carved the time out yesterday and today, bud. Well, thanks for inviting me to have me on. This is kind of fun. <clears throat> it's kind of good spending the afternoon with you. You know what it is? It's like free counseling. Because you get to just talk into a microphone and say things. (laughs) That's what this next
2: segment is all about, isn't it?
0: Yes, exactly. So Ashley and I are both pastors. And like we said in the last hour, pastoring right now in the midst of COVID, in the midst of uh, political unrest this year, turmoil, racial uh, unrest this past summer, all sorts of craziness going on right now. Uh, and, And... as pastors, oftentimes people in your congregation expect you to speak on everything, to weigh in on everything. Uh, and so Ashley and I were talking, and, and we thought this would be a fun conversation to have. Because, Ashley, I would say that, that you have been feeling this in some very deep ways over however much time. And it's this idea of the line. Uh, what is yeah. the line as pastors as to what are the topics that we talk about uh, either from the pulpit, on our own social media accounts, with people, whatever else it might be, And then secondarily, how do you deal with it when people feel like you've crossed a line? Like, how do how do you when when someone sends you that email going, Pastor, that was inappropriate, not inappropriate as in like wrong. But like, I don't know why you're talking about immigration, nationalism or uh, homosexuality or whatever else it might be Uh, when they say, uh, you know, I'm really mad at you for dealing with that. How do you deal with that? So those are a bunch of questions there, but actually jump in, especially as to why you're feeling this right now and wanting to talk about this. Yeah,
2: so this past Sunday, we're, we're preaching through the Sermon on the Mount, and I'm in the Beatitudes, and we touched on the seventh uh, Beatitude on Sunday, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they should be called sons of God. And I was talking about how the world and God view peace differently. The world views the peace as absence of conflict. God views peace as the presence of shalom. And so when we pursue peace as peacemakers in the way that the world views peace, we find ways to avoid conflict. And we do that by uh, pretending it doesn't exist and by preventing it from happening. And I was trying to use examples both individually and within society that we do that. And what I'm finding it was when I chose examples uh, of us doing that in society, that uh, some felt I crossed the line. And so I was, I was talking about how uh, one of the ways we pretend it doesn't exist is just by rejecting its existence. For example, systemic oppression, whether it be race or gender or economic status or even geographic location. And uh, to me, you know, those are things that especially in this last year, right? The, the world has given us as preachers so much that we need to talk about, whether it be uh, race, whether it be uh, politics, whether it be uh, the pandemic, uh, whatever the case, Christian nationalism. And I've, I've separated in my mind here talking about things that some might view as political and talking about things that some might view as partisan. Mm. Uh, and I'm viewing those as differently and I, I'm becoming you know, more comfortable as a preacher talking about things that I think are, in fact, political in nature in some way, but I'm still avoiding those things that are partisan, pushing a party over the other or a candidate over the other. And so we talked about, uh, again, uh, we talked about systemic racism. We talked about even in in the uh, preventing conflict, we do that by threatening conflict. And again, I had individual examples, but when I got to society, I talked about you know, what about nuclear weapons? That is a way in which we attempt to prevent conflict by threatening conflict. And it's like we have 3,800 active nuclear weapons right now. Like, are we actually even going to get number six fired off uh, after the first five? <laughs> and the other thing we talked about was the death penalty. And, you know, I refer to some of the statistics from uh, that Brian Johnson and the Equal Justice Initiative have put together uh, for every nine individuals since 1973 that have been executed in the United States one has been exonerated and declared innocent of the charges that they were uh uh, that they were uh, convicted of and so it's like regardless of your views of the death penalty let's acknowledge that there's a system that uh, might be flawed that then inflicts that penalty Mm. and that we use the death penalty as let's threaten violence to prevent violence and um That crossed the line for some. And so it's a question I've been asking myself this week is everybody, I think, has a line. They do not want their pastor to cross. And I think everybody's line is slightly different. And um, my thing right now is, you know, I have a number of meetings scheduled with people to talk about last Sunday's sermon. I had a number of texts on Sunday like, thank you for speaking up on this. Uh, I had a, a like a 65 year old uh, man reach out and say that was so refreshing. Thank you for talking about this. And then I have within the exact same congregation others that feel I crossed the line. Right. And like these are my brothers and sisters. Uh, I want to hear from them. And even when the conversations are are not easy, it's in some sense application of the sermon that let's not avoid the conflict. Let's talk about it. Yeah. And we might not agree at the end. We, we're gonna. We might. Uh, believe there's different lines that I don't know if I did cross this line, I did cross your line. I understand that. And um, I had a conversation today with a brother that I love dearly, and he heard my heart. I heard his heart. And we're going to keep pursuing the mission that Christ has given us together. Uh, we just viewed some of the things that I said on Sunday a little bit differently. And yeah. um, I'm actually appreciative for that conversation we had today. I actually, I love that brother more as a result of the way in which he approached me. It wasn't an attack or an accusation. It was, uh, he wanted a discussion.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Do you ever, when people push back on you and go like, hey, pastor, you went too far. uh, Does that ever make you regret that you spoke on topic X or topic Y? Are you going, you know what? It was, it it flew out of, it it flew, uh, flowed out of the text. Uh, and, and I felt like it needed to be addressed. Or are you one of those who's like, man, I, I just, if, if that riled anybody's feathers, then, then I have a little bit of regret for doing it. I, I
2: question and critique everything I do
0: so bad. And so <laughs> uh,
2: I've, I've not had a lot of sleep this week because I know some things I said hurt some people and, or they didn't receive, they didn't hear what I was trying to say necessarily. That's right. And like it, it is, it's, it's not necessarily healthy for a preacher to get so up in their head about that. Um, but I, I did, a uh, full confession here. Cause I think it's something we should talk about. I reached out uh, last night to my therapist and said, Hey, I think it's time I'd taken a few couple months off. I was like, I think it's time to get back in. And I just got some things I got to talk through with you. And, um, you know, so I got an appointment scheduled there. Uh, but we, it does bother me mm-hmm. because I love these people. Yep. And, um, also being an Enneagram three, like I go to the nine when I'm in stress. And so I kind of want to just sweep the conflict under the rug a little bit. And I know we need to talk about it and address it, which again, is just application of what we talked about on Sunday. So no, it, it, it keeps me up. I lose some sleep, but I've got, uh, I've got a couple of great elders who have spent a lot of time on the phone with me and, uh, talking through some of this and sharing in the conversations and like, there's good that comes out of it too. But no, I yeah. definitely wonder, did I cross the line? Like, I'm asking myself that first, and I need to be able to answer that before I can have some of these conversations.
0: Yeah, and I tend to be conver- uh, conflict averse. <laughs> so <Yeah>. uh, sometimes <laughs> that's enough for me, but there are, t- as pastors, uh, we do have to say hard things sometimes and uh, you want to prayerfully be like, is this what the text is saying? Is this coming out of here? And yes. quite frankly, and a not lot of times, what you
2: say, but how you say it in yep. a way that they're going to receive it.
0: Yeah. And a lot of times when when the when the feedback is, hey, just stick to the gospel. They're not saying that when I talk about abortion or when I talk yeah. about. And uh, I
2: said that exact line. I was like, there's going to be some that are going to say, just preach the gospel. I said, that's exactly what I'm trying to do right now. Yeah. Is exactly. I'm trying to point us to the words of Jesus and live out the way of Jesus in every area
0: of our life. No doubt. No doubt. But, uh, this is a hard one. And I, what I would suggest to the people out there who aren't pastors, but who, uh, push back on your pastors, take that pat, that posture that, that Ashley was just talking about. Uh, talk to your pastor. Don't be like, Hey, I'm out of here. We're leaving. Uh, but be like, Hey, I want to, I want to work this out together. The, the goal was never, uh, that we'd all be uniform. And the goal is unity, not uniformity. Yeah. And so how do we work that out? Well, coming up next, Brett McCracken, senior editor for the Gospel Coalition, also author of a new book called The Wisdom Pyramid, Feeding Your Soul in a Post-Truth World. Brett's going to join us for the next two segments here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Thanks so much for joining us today. Joined by my guest co-host, guest co-hosting yesterday and today, that being Ashley Hare. Uh, and, and I'm thrilled to be joined for the next two segments by the senior editor for the Gospel Coalition and the author of a new book entitled The Wisdom Pyramid, Feeding Your Soul in a Post-Truth World. That is Brett McCracken. Brett, thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Brian. It's a pleasure to be joining you from sunny, warm (laughs) Southern California. (laughs) I wish you could come here and hang out for a bit. We wish time of year.
0: We (laughs) wish we could come. This you're the smart one because uh, we were just talking off air that you're also a Wheaton grad like I am, and I stayed here, and you got out, and you went to Southern California. (laughs) So before we jump into this new book of yours, could you introduce yourself a little bit uh, besides taunting us about the Mm -hmm. weather? Uh, But introduce Mm. yourself to our audience so they can get to know you a little bit. Sure.
1: Yeah, I mean, for my day job, as you mentioned, I'm a senior editor for the Gospel Coalition, so I I do editing, writing articles. I tend to focus on the arts and culture and how to kind of engage those areas as Christians, which is kind of a dream job. I'll be honest; it's super fun to be able to watch movies, get paid to watch movies, and write about them from a theological perspective. Um, but really, I, I see it as a, a helpful service. Mm-hmm. You know, I get to point people every day to good things in culture and, you know, redemptive things, things that ask good questions. So, that's kind of what I do for a living. Beyond that, I, um, I'm i a father of two young boys, um, wife of Kira. Uh, we live here in Southern California in Santa Ana, which is right in the heart of Orange County. And we uh, I'm an elder at a local church awesome. called Southlands that we actually just planted a kind of offshoot campus that I'm one of the leaders at here in Santa Ana. Um, So yeah, that's that's a bit about me.
0: That's great. Well, as I said, back on February 9th, you had a new book come out called The Wisdom Pyramid, Feeding Your Soul in a Mm Post-Truth World. Uh, And actually, when Aubrey Sampson was on a few days ago or last week, we talked extensively. I know you and Aubrey are friends, and we talked extensively about your book. We're like, man, we need to have him on because this idea Mm -hmm. of the wisdom pyramid – uh, inspired, it says here, by the food pyramid model. Could you just kind of unpack yeah. just that imagery and the picture of what you mean by the wisdom pyramid?
1: Yeah, it's it's funny to talk about it on a audio-only media <laughs> yes. forum because it, the concept is so visual. But I think most of your listeners can probably remember the food pyramid, mm-hmm. right? Like most of us in our childhood at one point or another were taught the food pyramid, which is kind of a guide for healthy eating based on what food groups are conducive to a healthy balanced diet. And so, you had kind of the the healthier food groups more at the bottom of the pyramid and then at the top of the pyramid and the the pinnacle spot was the fats, oils and sweets category mm-hmm. <laughs> and the, gu- the guidance was used sparingly. So, um, I thought, you know, we kind of need this idea, we need this guidance for our souls in the digital age Absolutely. where there's there's so much content coming at us, like this this information buffet, if you will, is overwhelming. And if we're not careful, we can become gluttons and just stuff our faces with all sorts of unhealthy information, mm-hmm. kind of junk food information. And it's making us sick. And I think, honestly, if, if, if all of us are honest with ourselves, we probably would admit that we feel ourselves becoming slightly sick by, by mm-hmm. virtue of the diet of information that we're taking in. So, I, I just, I took the concept of the food pyramid. I created a visual um, wisdom pyramid where I have kind of categories of knowledge instead of food groups. And so, I put like the Bible at the foundation. So, where, where the bread group used to be in the food pyramid, I have the the bread of life, right? Mm-hmm. The word, yeah. our daily bread, um, God's God's word to us needs to be the foundation, and um, I have other categories like the church, nature, beauty, um, books. And then at the top in the, the fats, oils and sweets category, that's where I put like social media mm-hmm. and the internet. And I think that's kind of the, the wake up call when people see the graphic of the wisdom pyramid and they see that, you know, he's recommending the internet and social media be, it's on the pyramid, right? It has a place, so it's not like we should never be on there, but it needs to be it's really the least trustworthy source of nourishment. Um, so most of us, I think, have flipped that. And we, are, we, our staple of our diet when it comes to knowledge and information is social media and our feeds and our smartphones. Yeah. And that's what's making us sick. So, yeah, that's kind of why I wrote the book, to disorient our lives a bit more around um, nourishing sources that are going to be healthy for our, for our souls.
2: And so, Brett, uh, one question I was having is I feels like every author, when they write a book, there's kind of like that aha moment. Like, oh, this is the let's mm-hmm. say the spark that gets fanned into flame of I have something that I want to research and I have something that I want to share with people. What was it for you that made yeah. you want? I mean, because like you gave birth to something, mm-hmm. everything I see from friends writing books, this is not easy. What mm-hmm. made you want to pursue this topic? And I got to imagine it's something in your life, something you've seen yeah. in culture. What was yeah. that?
1: Yeah. I mean, probably it's it came out of the fact that I live and work in the digital space, right? Mm-hmm. I'm a digital journalist. So, I, by virtue of my job, I have to spend a lot of time online on social media. Um, I, I look at a screen like all day, every day for my work. And so, I've I've seen in my own soul and in my own heart just how um, taxing that is, how toxic so much of what I come across is. And um, I, I just, yeah, I I, I I wrote the book and I came up with this idea really first and foremost for myself, just to, to make sure that I'm living a life that's oriented around, you know, more nourishing sources mm-hmm. and that I'm not kind of binging on the junk food information, which is so easy to do. So, mm-hmm. I think, yeah, just my profession and fact that I'm online so much is really the the reason I came to write it. And in the specific catalyst, um, the kind of back story was three years ago, I was asked to give a conference presentation on this kind of fake news, uh, post-truth world that we live in where it's we don't know where to look, what to trust, and how, how can we fr- find wisdom and joy as Christians mm. in a world like that? So, that talk which was just like a ted talk like 10 minute talk i was asked to give um i i created the wisdom pyramid as my like slide as my visual aid for that talk so that was the the impetus really to create that graphic and that was i think 2017 so or more than three years ago now and uh and so here we are it's now a book and um i expanded on kind of the graphic and each component of the graphic in the book and just to dig a little deeper into what I'm getting at. That's
0: awesome. And Brett, I'm thrilled that you're going to join us for a second segment because there's so much to talk about here. But with like the last two minutes we have in this segment, uh, what about your personal life? What are changes have you made? Some people will be like, well, okay, mm-hmm. is this guy never on social media? Is he reading the Bible all the time? You know, this kind of stuff. Right. What does your life look like? And yeah. how has this research kind of helped you orient your life a little bit?
1: Yeah, I mean, one thing I'll say is I'm not recommending like <laughs> um, that that like each category you have to have like Five to six helpings of the Bible Uh, and three to four (laughs) helpings of nature and, you know, one helping of social media. Like, it's not a mathematical kind of uh, portioning that I'm suggesting. It's really just a broad framework of prioritizing. So, making sure that your life in terms of where you look first for foundational truth and for answers that you're looking in the right places and you're not going first to Twitter, you know, to kind of um, find truth and find joy. So, um, in my own life, I've just tried to live those that general priority. So, it's probably not the case that I spend more hours in my week, like reading the Bible right. versus social media. I probably still spend a lot more time on the internet and on social media. But in terms of my my heart and my mind and and where I'm putting my trust... That's, that's where I've tried Good. to shift those priorities. That's great,
0: man. We're thrilled to be joined by Brett McCracken. Brett is a senior editor for the Gospel Coalition, as well as the author of a new book called The Wisdom Pyramid, Feeding Your Soul in a Post-Truth World. And Brett, again, thanks so much for staying with us. And as we talk about your book and also this great article you wrote about 10 days ago or, or a week ago at the Gospel Coalition called Don't Fill Every Open Moment with Content, uh, I was joking with you off air that I'm I'm notorious for this. Like We stop at a stoplight and I'm looking at Twitter. We stop, yep. you know, this kind of stuff. Uh, what's the danger in that? People might be like, man, we're overdoing it. <laughs> what is the actual danger? And why is that bad for our soul to fill every open moment with content?
1: Yeah, you know, I think the the biggest problem with it is that it doesn't leave any unmediated space in our lives. So in order to be wise, you need you need to have time to actually like, think about things and and make connections with what you've come across and kind of synthesize that information so just like with food right like if you if you're just constantly filling your face with food it's never your body's never going to have time to like synthesize those nutrients and and kind of process it it's just going to go in one you know place and come out the other fast because it's mm. just this constant you know flood of food and so with information we just have to make sure that we're going slow enough with it that we actually create, have space to think critically about it, um, process it well. And, and the problem with the impulse to fill every spare moment with content, right? Whether you're at a stoplight or waiting in line mm-hmm. or, you know, it, it just removes every, <laughs> every last shred of open space where we, where we could think well about things so it 's just a huge problem in our world it 's no wonder that people are so foolish and, and lacking in critical thinking skills anymore yeah
2: well and so on that so preface i 'm an engineer by trade i 'm just a pastor now, so like I love the science of the things, and so even yeah. like my therapy sessions with my therapist we'll talk about what 's actually going on hmm. uh, chemically and, and physiologically in your in your brain. Are we being, you know, you hear about uh, your, our brains being rewired with yeah. respect to constant pornography, for example. Yeah. Is that same type of thing happening here that like the reason we're reaching for our phone at the stoplight is because there's a release of something that makes us feel better just reaching for the phone?
1: Man, yeah. I mean, <laughs> there's so much there that I could talk about. I mean, the social media companies really did design these things to be addictive, to to kind of give us dopamine rushes and to make sure that we were on their platforms as much as we possibly could be. So they created things like push notifications and dings and little things that make us excited when we see them likes, et cetera. So there's that kind of the psychology of uh, addiction, you know, whether you're talking about a slot machine, which Mm -hmm. is designed to be addictive or Facebook, which is designed to be addictive. But, um, To your question about just the brain and the rewiring, there's a lot of really interesting stuff, research that has been done about how our brains are being rewired by the constant like stimulation and and kind of bite-sized junk food information that comes across our brains throughout the day, all day, every day. When your brain is looking at your social media feeds, which is like one video about something silly next to a serious headline about injustice or an atrocity next to an article about finances, next to who knows what. Your brain just doesn't know how to triage. It your brain our brains are kind of spending so much energy in the digital age playing constant triage. Like, do I file this away? Can I discard this? Is this important information? Is this trivial information? It's all coming at us in the same feed and our brains don't know what to do with it all. So the research is showing that because our brains are spending all of their energy on that triage mode, there's very little energy left to do that deeper level thinking, that kind of reflective, synthesizing, critical thinking that we, we desperately need to, to be able to be wise. So, that's troubling, right? <laughs> when our brains are physically losing the ability to think critically because they're expending all the energy on how to process the constant flood mm. coming at them, um, we're going to be in trouble as a society. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I, it makes me just, again, I talk about this all the time on the show, but that Netflix documentary, uh, The Social Dilemma, is was the most yeah. eye-opening thing I've seen in a long time along this yeah. lines of right. what you're talking about.
1: Sobering. It huh? really was. Yeah. It really was.
0: Brett, let me ask this. You're, you're, uh, if there's somebody out there listening right now, like, you know what, I've got this pyramid upside down, um, I, you know, social media and the internet takes the vast majority of my time uh, and and they're feeling that weight right now and thinking, but what can I do? Like, what's the, what would you tell somebody is a good first step or a first two steps to kind of getting this right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Something that I often say that isn't original to me. I'm not sure who came up with it. Maybe Andy Crouch, but um, just one small thing I've tried to do is just for the first hour of every day, Just put your phone in another room. Like don't fight the temptation to like grab for your phone like immediately when you wake up in the morning. Like go have breakfast with your family, read your Bible, you know, go for a walk, go for a run. Like there's a whole lot of other things you could do with that first hour of the day. But just that symbolic gesture of not letting your phone, not letting your device kind of set the tone and set the agenda... Right from the get go, I think that would be a great first step if you can just kind of prioritize that. That's something I've implemented in my life, and it's a struggle. You know, yes. <laughs> it's so tempting. It's so tempting to want to look at your phone within the f- first five minutes of your day to see what did I miss? What mm-hmm. you know? What notifications did I miss during the night? Like, is there anything happening in the news that I missed? But it, we're, we become so um, at the mercy of the algorithms when we're not power when we're powerless to resist the temptation. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Try we to need, do, we, yeah,
2: we need a resurgence of alarm clock sales again, don't we? <laughs> yeah. We
1: totally do. So you, so you can put your phone like in another room at night right. rather than yeah. having your phone be your alarm. Right. Yeah.
0: Well, Brett, uh, how about this? Uh, after we've just told people not to get obsessed with being online or this, I do want people to find your stuff. Uh, so where are all the places they can find you? Social media, uh, website, where can they find your book? Go ahead and dump all of that on people right now.
1: I know. I always feel awkward like then <laughs> plugging anything <laughs> on social media yes. after I talk about how harmful it is. But um, my personal website is a good place to start. I have a brettmccracken.com website um, as authors often mm-hmm. do with my all of my book information and blog posts and social media. So you could you could look there if you're interested, but, but really well, go, go outside on a walk, you know, go read the Bible, go read other good books <laughs> is what, what <laughs> I would say.
2: And if I can plug for you, I was reading through your Wisdom 40 challenge for Lent and I mm-hmm. thought that was uh, incredible. And, and something else that I thought was very encouraging, you, you seem to push Filling our lives with something Mm -hmm. more than restricting our lives from something else. And that idea of, we were talking about this yesterday, let's be known by what we are for, not just what we're against. And it feels less restrictive and it feels more freeing to let's fill our minds with this rather than that. Absolutely. So, yeah, I was super appreciative and filled Mm -hmm. by that.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm glad you picked up on that because that's really what this book, I wanted it to be less about kind of the typical like technology is bad for you type book and more about like what should we be filling our hearts and minds with? Like there's so many beautiful nourishing things out there that can actually um, enrich our lives and make us healthier and wise. So that's really what I'm getting at in, in this book is it's part, part of it is being mindful of how much time you're spending and how addicted you are to technology. But most of it is like, there's a lot of other great things that you could be, filling your time with um, that are going to be, more nourishing for you.
0: Awesome. Brett, we're thrilled that you joined us today. I do have to just tell you, while you were talking about this, we're doing these shows from our houses ever since the pandemic. And whatever. I'm looking out the window, there's a lady walking a dog on a beautiful day while reading her phone. And I'm like, that's just yeah, the perfect right. picture right there of what you were just <laughs> talking about.
1: Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Anyway, it's sad. It really but we all do that, too. Right. I do that, too. All, I'm guilty as charged all yeah. the time.
0: Well, Brett uh, is, the again, the senior editor of Gospel Coalition. I'd encourage you to go to Gospel Coalition and you could catch up and read read a ton of stuff that Brett has done. If you're at all a part of the show, you know that we read a lot of his stuff and discuss it right here on the show. And Brett is also the author of a new book, The Wisdom Pyramid, Feeding Your Soul in a Post-Truth World. Brett, this has been great, man. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you
1: too. It's great to be with
0: you. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on Aim 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, joined yesterday and today by the lead pastor of Redemption Bible Church in Mount Prospect, Illinois. Right here uh, is uh, Ashley Hare. Uh, Ashley, man, I do really do appreciate it. We've joked a lot back and forth, and uh, I am re- super appreciative of you taking these last two days to join us. So I didn't have to just be the only one talking. So it's been a lot of fun. Thanks for doing this, man.
2: Thanks for having me. It's been a good time, and uh, hopefully I didn't ruin the listenership too much over these last two days. Yeah, no
0: one's listening. Don't worry about it. (laughs) (laughs) Not at all. So not at all. We're thrilled to have you on, and I'm sure you'll be on again sometime. And so it was fun. uh, Glad to do it. One way that we've been ending the show, basically since the pandemic began, uh, is we've been trying to leave with some good news or some inspiration, just something to get you thinking. I I always like to picture this last segment as, as leaving something for people to go through the rest of their evening, kind of to either put a smile on their face or a thought in their head, something to kind of chew on and consider. And with that, I want to read from the blog of Tim Challies. And if you know at all, Tim Challies right now, uh, he is a super well known Christian blogger. He writes a ton uh, at Challies.com. And uh, sadly, within the last, I think it's two or three months. It's all running together now. Uh, Tim Challey's college-age son, Nick Challey's just died unexpectedly at college, uh, mm-hmm. just uh, super tragically. Uh, and Tim Challey's has been ri- writing now a lot that kind of like that just affects everything, right? Everything you write, everything you speak from that point on in your life, your life is, is going to be in some ways defined by that. And, and this one is... Uh, is certainly the case. He entitled this one, Homesick. So let me just read some of this blog t- uh, post that he titled Homesick. Uh, and then, uh, Ashley, we could talk about it as we close out the show. He says, uh, Tim says, my thoughts these days turn often to heaven. In those moments when I hover between asleep and awake, in those moments when I bow my head to pray, in those moments when I lift my voice to sing, my mind turns often to that place and to its people My father made the journey there not too long ago, and my son trailed close behind him. The two key men in my life, the one in whose footsteps I followed and the one who was following in mine, have both preceded me and both await me. Never have I had such longing to be there, for never have I been able to envision a welcome from those who are so familiar, so beloved, so sorely missed. The Bible has a lot to say, he writes about heaven, and much of it is presented in language that demands analysis and meditation, language that points us to uh, to the literal by way of the evocative. Heaven has gates of pearls and streets of gold, we are told. It has walls of jasper and waters of crystal. It is in the shape of a cube, each of its walls adorned with precious jewels. It is bright, but without sun or moon, for God himself is its light. There's a mystery to heaven, It must be so much better than we can imagine, so far beyond our comprehension that only poetic representations can begin to do it justice. And even if these images do not let us perfectly picture it in our minds, they most certainly make us long for it in our hearts. But there is far less mystery and far more familiarity to the most precious of its descriptions, Uh, its home for each of us. The father has reserved a room in his home, says Jesus, and he himself has gone to prepare it. What comfort there is in knowing that when we come to the end of our lives, we do not depart into the ether or disappear into the void, but we simply go home. We all know what it is to be home. Home is a place of safety, of security, of familiarity. When we have ventured far, we long to return home, for we know we always leave behind a part of our very selves. No matter how joyful a vacation, no matter how wonderful a journey, home always draws us. It always beckons us to return. It is at home that we are always welcome, at home that we love to celebrate, at home that we are most authentically ourselves. Nowhere offers more comfort, nowhere offers more joy, more peace, more love than home. And he goes on to say, right now, I'm sick for home, though at this very moment I'm within the walls of my house. I know this is truly no more than a sojourner's shelter. He says, I long for her to be home. And let me read the last paragraph. He says, I'm confident that despite my longing to be here is more needful than to be there, at least for the moment. God has people for me to love, purposes for me to fulfill, burdens for me to bear. I will continue to prepare myself for the place God has prepared for me, continue to walk the narrow path he has charted for me, knowing that whether smooth or rugged, whether well-paved or pothole, this road leads me home. With each step, I feel the anticipation growing. With each footfall, the homesickness setting deeper within. I long to be home. Whenever the storms of life howl around me, home. When the cares of life threaten to overwhelm me, home. When the losses of life threaten to break me, home. My eyes strain to see it, my ears to hear it, my hands to grasp it. Home, sweet home. Home where my God is. Home where my heart is. Home where my father is. Home where my son is. Simply, wonderfully, eternally, home. Ashley, that was written by Tim Challies. That is such phenomenal writing. I, I would love for you just to reflect on what we heard there from Tim Challies.
2: It, it felt like the type of thing that was so beautifully written from his heart that he wrote it in like 30 seconds yeah. in one sitting. Yeah. It, it couldn't have been edited. It was, that, it was that pure and that authentic and that vulnerable. Um, I think it's the type of thing that you and I hope and pray to be from the pulpit, that vulnerable and authentic, but it, you know, in this season, and I hate that word, it's so overused, but I don't have a better one. I find myself turning to first Peter a lot more. And isn't that really what his letter is, is a letter to sojourners, a word he used who long for home, who long for the kingdom of heaven and, uh, Peter says in in chapter one, he says, blessed be the God and father of the Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading and kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Mm. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking that we're we're closing up our our mini series on the Beatitudes this week, looking at the last one on blessed are those who uh, are persecuted for righteousness sake. Blessed are those who who suffer uh, for for the name of Jesus. And like growing up, I was taught that, you know, if you did everything, if you did the right things the right way, things are going to work out Mm -hmm, for you. mm -hmm. And so then when things go wrong in our life. I think it makes us question if, if, am I doing something wrong? Am I something wrong? We don't just question our doing, but we question our own being. Yeah. And it can rock our faith. And the two things that I want to share with my church family on Sunday is that um, suffering is a certainty, not a possibility. It's going to happen. And like Peter goes on to say, like, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. Like it's going to come. And he says, but it said, rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. Like there's this, uh, there's this commonality that we get to share with Christ in suffering. And so it's a certainty, not a possibility. And in some way, Jesus says it is a blessing, not a curse, because the reward is the kingdom. Of heaven hmm. rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven it's you know he alludes to paul here it's beyond what any eye has seen ear has heard or heart of the mind imagined and our our reward uh our prosperity it's not something promised to us in this life instead it's promised to us for all of eternity and um i was moved as, as a father like i'm picturing my boys as you read yeah. that and uh the pain that he must feel, I can only say I appreciate that longing he feels. And uh, if I were in his shoes, and I'm just grateful for him sharing this.
0: Uh, it's a good word, man. Thanks for closing up shop that way, because that was great word, as I said by Tim Challies. Uh, he's a phenomenal writer, you, you know that from over the years. But the the pain he's had to endure uh, one thing to lose your father at an old age like that's hard, but somewhat expected. But to lose your college age son yeah. out of the blue is it, it will break you. And uh, so to read those kind of longings of Tim Challies of I'm, I've got work to do here, but I long to be home, I think it's something for all of us to consider. And, and I would love for you to consider that as you go about your day today. that perspective. How does that change things uh, and why is it so important? So hopefully that is helpful as we close out today's show. Ashley, man, thank you again. I appreciate you doing this, friend. Thanks for having me on. It's been fun. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Our pleasure. Well, We'll be back again tomorrow from 4 until 6. Until then, we hope that you have a great night. Again, for Ashley Hare, my name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.